This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. For more, visit theannexpodcast.com. we turn to Becky Yang Su, a sociologist from Georgetown University. Becky recently published a new book with Cambridge University Press, Borrowing Together, Microfinance and Cultivating Social Ties. It's a real treat to have her join us today. Welcome, Becky. Hi, thanks for having me. Becky, tell us about Borrowing Together. Okay. Um, it is kind of a ridiculously simple argument. Basically, um, I'm arguing that um, concepts of personhood, so what you think a person is or what you imagine a person is, will come out in the theories about people, <laughs> so about social theory. And I'm kind of finding, or I, I look at a specific set of micro, uh, theories about microfinance that economists have, and then I see how they play out in an actual field site. So I studied rural China and then looked at how much or whether um, the expectations of, of people actually happened uh, there. And yeah, not to spoil it, but they didn't have that. <laughs> well, how are they different? In what way do you feel like uh, the, uh, let's say, established views uh, are, are wrong? Okay. I mean, so we're all from Princeton, and I think one of the things that um, I guess I learned at Princeton was to bash on economists. And so that's kind of what I do in the book. You can edit this out if you want. Um but basically, you know, it's like the typical stuff. But I mean, I guess, um, well, first, I was thinking actually about the the um, the title that I chose for the book, and I, I may kind of regret it, and this maybe should be edited out. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> but I, I realized that in our cultural context in the United States, a, a, a title like Borrowing Together sounds like it's already a positive spin on it. I mean, anything that sounds together is like, oh, that must be good, because the converse of it is that not together is the is the um, sort of expectation. Mm -hmm. And then if it's together, it's like a surprise. And then it's like, oh, it must be good. But that's not the way other people in the world live, I guess. And um, the individualistic expectations of how people would behave um, don't, don't play out there. So um, I guess you're asking what doesn't happen, yeah. I guess. Um, yeah. So the first thing is that in microfinance, they put people into groups. And they go, oh, now that you're in groups, you can pressure each other to repay the loans. And then that way, everybody will repay the loans. And then you guys can all get new loans. And then you're going to um, like make a profit or make a business with mm -hmm. your loan. And then you're going to work, you know, get out of mm -hmm. poverty. So this is the thing. Putting First, there's the assumption of it's, it's the assumption of a blank slate. What I found in my field site was that you put people in, in groups, but they're already in groups. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the assumption that it's like, oh, we're going to put you in groups and then you're going to do stuff together. Like that right away is like not taking into account the reality that people are already very social and already have their groups. So that was the first thing. <laughs> um, and it's something that James Ferguson, who's uh, an anthropologist, I think now he's at Stanford, um, I talked about like way, you know, way back in one of the classics um, on uh, global development. 
um, which is this thing that people think that there's this blank slate. Like you go to a third world country or a developing country and then it's like, oh, let me fix you. And then you can, the assumptions that like, there's nothing there to begin with. Uh, how, how, how were, how were these uh, Chinese micro lenders? How was their social life or community life different from what we in the West might expect? Those of us who've been thinking about microfinance before. Um, okay. Well, first, um, I guess one of the one of the um, premises with the economic theories is that people have to be put into a position where they are incentivized to repay loans, um, and and otherwise they won't repay the loans, right? That's kind of the whole point of like they set up these incentive structures, and you're supposed to pressure each other. But I found, like, when I was asking about, I looked at two different programs, and when I was asking about one of them, I was asking about loans in general in the community. And I was like, well, so, you know, when's the last time somebody didn't repay a loan uh, to somebody else? And they're like, what are you talking about? Because it was such a crazy thing (laughs) to not repay a loan to somebody else in the village. And if you think about it, that completely makes sense. Everybody's been there for generations. People have, you know, like, you'd live next to your uncle who has watched you grow up. You, you know, or your neighbor who's watched you grow up or whatever, and they know your mom and your aunt and your best friend. And um, for you to not repay somebody alone in the village, that just makes no sense. So even have it, like the idea of like, we have to put you in some kind of instru- incentive structure to make you repay the loan. That didn't, that just didn't even make sense in this, in this context. Do you feel like microloans are having a positive impact on Chinese development, or do you think they're more of a non-factor? They're kind of a non-factor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so basically, I looked at two different programs. One of them didn't work too well. One of them, people didn't repay the loans, um, or half of them didn't. The other one, everybody did because of the way um, it was structured. But neither of them actually led to much well-being <laughs> i mean you know the idea that like oh you get like a hundred dollars and then um you're supposed to create a little mm. business and then um like you, you create the business but who are you going to sell your mm. stuff to mm. oh the other people in the village <laughs> oh. <laughs> where's that money coming from right so it's a little bit <laughs> doesn't work Becky, what you were talking about a minute ago with like the blank slate and kind of coming in and, oh, we'll fix you, um, it reminds me a little bit of uh, kind of an underlooked aspect of imperialism, if you think back to kind of the Victorian age of it, where a lot of it really was altruistic in motive, right? We, we think of... Um, uh, we think of imperialism in terms of like, you know, basically militaries coming in and then resource extraction, but there was a whole aspect of it where you had uh, this wave of kind of ecumenical Protestantism coming in with missionaries who were effectively the Victorian equivalent to Mm -hmm. NGOs, uh, trying to, you know, basically remake people in, you know, with entirely altruistic motives and not just for their eternal souls, but for their lives on earth. Yeah. There's a white man's burden. Well, no, white man's burden, it was um, a specific reference from uh, Kipling uh, Kipling to American involvement in the Philippines. And that really was about kind of military occupation and force of arms to come in and, uh, you know, civilize the savage races, that sort of thing. Um, But I'm talking more about the Victorian equivalent to NGOs, where there's no violence at all. Yeah, sorry. Mark Michael Barnett is a historian who st- he has a book on uh, the history of humanitarianism, and he calls I 
think what you're talking about, the civil, uh, civilizational motive mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. But basically, it's, you know, these they're really altruistic. I mean, they want to help people mm-hmm. and they have the idea to, like, make them into better mm-hmm. people by civilizing them. Mm-hmm. Oof, yikes. Is that... Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was probably thinking about, like, uh, Neil Ferguson's imperialism book that came out, like, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. um, you know, where he talked about there were different, there was the military aspect, the economic aspect, but there was also this very strong kind of proto-NGO aspect from uh, ecumenical Protestant missionaries. Yeah. So my mm-hmm. comment, um, Becky, has to do with the title of your book, which I actually love. Right. So, right. Like the title of your book to me, like evokes bowling alone. (laughs) Right. Um, Which, which I think is, is great. And it's like barring together. So, you know, you know, love them or not. Right. You know, bowling alone, like was huge, 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 huge. Right. And, you know, with this idea that like, oh, my goodness, like our social ties are eroding. And because of this, you know, civilization is going down the toilet. Right. Um, But it's but what he's talking about are very, very specific types um, and types and forms of um, of social capital. Right. Um, And I think that that's part of what you're doing is you're leveling this critique. Right against this idea that there are these very, very specific types of social capital, um, number one, that you build on, and also sort of forms of social networks that help to ensure that, like, trust, you know, is built, and so people will repay their loans. And so in that respect, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I actually love your title. Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, I think you're right that um, this turned out to be a critique of social capital mm-hmm. work. <laughs> and I didn't mean it that way, but it was a little bit in my backdrop, um, kind of the backdrop of what I was doing. So what I don't like about social capital theory is that it um, it's looking at social relationships as a means to mm-hmm. other ends. And, you know, whether it be economic development or political something, something or, you know, individual, even individual sort of um, happiness, you know, satisfaction or something. But um, that's not the only way to look at it. So for some people, the social relationships are the end and the other things are a means to them. So... Actually, what I found in the field site was that um, in one of the programs that I was looking at, people were using the microfinance loans like in a wily way, I guess. But they they used it to um, curry favor to the people that they wanted they wanted to have better relationships with. Some of that was I mean, relationship sounds sort of um, nicer than, um, you know, than it sometimes it was instrumental relationships. Sometimes it was. uh, otherwise, I guess. Um, but anyway, people were actually using the money to um, curry favor with people who had power either socially or politically. Yeah, I'm just thinking like it's such like a great example of like you have these like, you know, microfinance, social entrepreneur, blah, 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 coming in and saying like, we'll uh, you know, establish credit associations. And then what do people do with it? They use it for guanxi. You know, it's like, uh, you know, the thing of like the plan doesn't survive yeah. contact. Um, you know, on the ground, it just doesn't work out the way people uh, hope it would when they're giving their TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so Becky, more deeply, uh, so your book talk, seems to talk a lot about trust and, uh, you know, the more cultural dimensions of social ties. Were there any uh, parts of that experience where you felt you gained some insight that could help you make sense of what's, you know, life in America uh, at all? Well, I think for me, actually, what it showed me was the bias of a lot of social mm -hmm. science. So, you know, assuming that people are individualistic, assuming that the ends are not social relationships, assuming that people use social relationships to get money, as opposed to using money to get social relationships. This is, I mean, I, you know, um, so I critique, like, I critique Joseph Stiglitz. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, um, yeah, I guess I, I, uh, I'm not afraid to, you got the big shots? Reach for the <laughs> yeah, he knows he won't know anything about me, but uh, you know, I might as well. I can say whatever yeah. I want, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess I, I think there's a lot of social science, and it's not just economics, but a lot of other work in a lot of social science, these social sciences, I should say, that have these very culturally specific assumptions about how people yes. work. Yes, no, Becky, and that totally goes back to my comment about Wakanda at the beginning <laughs> of this of this episode. Yeah, yeah, you know, so I started reading um, what is called post-colonial theory, which I didn't realize existed until after I pretty much finished this book. <laughs> it's always um, the way. Yeah, always the way, but I, once I started reading, um, Julian mm -hmm. Goh um, at Boston University has a book out, I, I think it's just called post-colonial theory but basically he's talking about the way that sociology has been super provincial i mean the the assumptions the way that the history of it has come from a very specific place and does not take into account the way that a lot of people in the world maybe a majority of them actually live um that and that's something that i, I <laughs> that's exactly i think what i show I, I think in my book but do you think you were were really all that different i mean how many colleagues do you know reduce everything to power instead of material gain right like there are a lot of people who have sort of one central organizing concept in their worldview and they just see it everywhere right maybe it's Maybe it's uh, material gain or efficiency or whatever for an economist. But do you think we're qualitatively different as sociologists if we see just everything's power or... Yeah, no, I actually think sociologists are really provincial too, <laughs> unfortunately. In what way? Yeah, I mean, everything's about equality or inequality. And actually, I think there are actually other ways to look at social relationships. It's not just about distribution of power, distribution of you know benefits or, or equality the way that we we tend to focus on. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the challenges of doing field work in rural China? Like, what was that like? Like, <laughs> what advice would you give someone who's thinking about running a study that goes into the same type of site? Okay, there are definitely challenges. And uh, actually, fun, fun fact, um, I was out there... I think it was the last year or second to last year I was out there. Um, it was also the high point of the avian flu. Oh. <laughs> and so I was out there. I had gotten the kind of warning from whatever health travel people. And um, I was having lunch or dinner. I, I, I think it was lunch because it was daylight. And someone came by and just um, they had like a bowl of chicken blood that had just been sitting 
outside for a while. Like when we came in, I saw it sitting outside. And then while we were eating, somebody came in and we were all sharing this big kind of hot pot, mm-hmm. like um, kind of a big pot and everybody's taking from it and it's, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like boiling. Mm-hmm. Someone picked up that bowl and poured the whole thing into the hot pot. <laughs> so this is chicken blood yeah. during the height of avian flu. So I was, uh, I, I kind of stopped eating after that. Wait, wait, I hope it was someone you were eating with. It wasn't just a passerby, right? <laughs> no, it, it was the, uh, it was the cook. I mean, oh, it was wow. the, you know, yeah. Becky, you're so, definitely um, yeah. not going to be the next Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't eat it. No, but he yeah, won. I, mean, I, ate it. I think. Oh, he won. <laughs> At the height of avian flu, I think though, so. Think? I think so. Well, how? Wait a minute. Was the hot pot at an actual boil or not? Right? Because uh, you know, you get up to 165 degrees for 10 minutes, whatever, you'll be fine. Well, then it cleans out the blood. Oh, no, dude, I'm not eating. Well, blood. if it would kill a virus or something, it probably would. I think they were all okay. Yeah. You know, and that you're right. I kind of chickened out that day because most <laughs> no of the time. Intended. I was <laughs> 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 Um, yeah, so fieldwork definitely had its challenges. I lived with um, NGO staff and um, some sort of small town government officials. Um, and, uh, you know, it wasn't, I think it would be hard for many, maybe some people. Um, but I don't know. On the other hand, it's every day was really exciting. And, you know, there's always stuff to learn and, and stuff. Um, in terms of what I would tell somebody who's going out there, uh Actually, the the environment in China right now for doing research is um, it's things are tightening up. Um, you've probably seen stuff in the news about um, President Xi, um, you know, kind of consolidating power, yeah. and it's sort of it's sort of in the air. I mean, researchers um, are very careful, you know, um, now. I think more than they were before, maybe just three or four years ago, it would, you know, it was, it was fine. It was more fine to go out and kind of just look around and stuff. But at this point, I probably, I I would, it's not easy. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. For more information, visit theannexpodcast.com. Music is by Lena Orsa. Our production team included Anika Chowdhury and Liseth Moreno. On behalf of the Annex team, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.